Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So it's Ladies of Late Night Week here at Quarantine Creatives, talking to some of the women who work both in front of and behind the camera to make some of your favorite late night shows possible. If you haven't heard it yet, go back and listen to Monday's show with Desi Lydic, Daily Show correspondent. It was really incredible. It was fun just to sort of hear Desi's perspective on, uh, you know, making the show during the pandemic and uh, to get her perspective from in front of the camera. And today's show is looking at the behind the scenes piece of it. Today's guest is Allison Camillo, who is the executive producer of Full Frontal with Samantha B. One of the best late night shows on television. I have been such a fan. I was a fan of Sam's from her time at The Daily Show. And since Full Frontal launched, I just think they have done a really terrific job. But especially over the last six months or so, you know, they moved to at-home production very early in the pandemic and have continued with it all along. If you haven't seen it, they've actually been recording the show in Sam's backyard. And uh, so I've seen some clips on sort of what goes into that. But it was really fun talking to Allison and just sort of hearing how she makes all the pieces come together every week because it's a huge challenge if you have writers and technical crew and editors and producers and, you know, just everybody all in their homes trying to put a show on the air. It's hard enough when everybody's in one room. I can't imagine just having to to coordinate all those pieces, make sure everything is working. And you'll hear her say in the interview just to put the show out at a level that they're all proud of and that doesn't feel like a compromise, even though we are in compromising times. I really admired that. And I just think they are doing a phenomenal job over there. And I'm so excited to talk to Allison about it. The other thing that's awesome about Allison is she was actually working at The Daily Show for about 18 years before moving over to Full Frontal. And uh, if you if you look at the guest list of this show or <laughs> have heard me talk at all, you know I'm a Daily Show fan. I've talked to Roy Wood Jr. I've talked to Desi Lydic. And, uh, you know, I grew up on The Daily Show. I remember watching the Craig Kilborn show uh, back in the day when Craig was the host. Uh, and then when Jon Stewart took over, now with Trevor Noah, it's just always sort of been this amazing constant in my life and a place that really ignited a love for politics in me. Maybe it was already there. Maybe it was kind of latent in me. My family's very interested in politics as well. But The Daily Show, I think, is really where that interest crystallized. And Allison was uh, was at The Daily Show for much of its run and really witnessed a lot of the most amazing moments in that show's history. So we got to talk a little bit about The Daily Show as well. But obviously, she's uh, she's at Full Frontal now and doing a fantastic job there. That show is so good. I got to say, too, it is uh, still Emmy judging time. If you're an Academy member, Emmy voting is still open. And uh, Full Frontal has two nominations for the series itself this year, Outstanding Talk Variety Series and Outstanding Writing for a Variety Series. Plus, they're also nominated for two short-form categories, Outstanding Short-Form Nonfiction or Reality Series for the series they've been doing, Pandemic Video Diaries looking at how they've been making the show during this unprecedented crazy time. They've been documenting it and sharing it with their audience. So those short form segments are Emmy nominated, as well as their series Being at Home, which is nominated for Outstanding Short Form Variety Series. And those were kind of the first uh, the first test segments, I guess you could say, before they uh, really launched full steam into doing shows from home. They were doing these Being at Home segments that were hilarious. So if you're a Full Frontal fan like me, Keep that in mind as you're uh, marking up your Emmy ballot. I got to say, too, one issue that they have really been out front on is what's happening at the post office. Sam covered this on the show back in April, and then they had a whole social media campaign in the summertime in early July. And I'm glad they're sounding the alarm on this because I'm just sort of I'm so confused as to what's going on at the post office right now. And I'm so distressed about it. And I don't know sort of where to channel that energy. I posted about it on Instagram and uh, was just sort of taking suggestions from people of like, what should we be doing? Because people talk about the budget issues at the post office, that they're running out of money or, you know, there's a budget deficit or whatever. And obviously some of that is artificial because of this mandate that was passed in 2006 that they must fund 75 years of pension obligations. In other words, funding retirement funds for some people that haven't even been born yet, potentially. You know, there's employees 
that may start at the post office 30 or 40 years from now, and they need to be funding their pensions today, which obviously no other government branch and no other business has that type of obligation. So that's certainly contributed to some of their financial issues, and that's largely an artificial uh, benchmark. So a lot of people have talked about, you know, buying stamps or buying merchandise or doing other things to help bring some money into the post office. And I get that. And I think there is some argument that that can be successful. And especially if you look at like on the scale that Full Frontal did, where they bought 100,000 stamps, that's obviously going to make a big difference. You and I going to the post office and buying an extra book of stamps that we were probably going to buy two weeks later anyways... I don't know that that's really moving the needle all that much, but I think the bigger concern is just sort of what's been going on with mail sorting machines and overtime payments. And, you know, if you haven't been following the story, I encourage you to go look it up because there's a lot of shady stuff happening at the post office right now. And the guy who is serving as postmaster general is a political appointee of Trump's, a big donor to his campaign, and also somebody that has investments in a lot of private shipping companies and logistic companies that could stand to make money if the post office went under. So there's this question of, is what's happening at the post office legitimate concerns about cost cutting, or is it an attempt to make the post office look feeble and unprofitable and out of touch? And I think it's probably the latter. And then there's the question of, are they just trying to clog the machinery, so to speak, before the November election so that it becomes really, really difficult to vote by mail and maybe a lot of ballots don't get counted or get lost or delayed or whatever. And I just, I don't know how to take action on this because I find it very frustrating. I find it very deflating and I want to do something, but I don't feel like anybody has a good answer yet. I've seen people protesting outside of the Postmaster General's house. That seemed to help. I guess he's going to be testifying before Congress this weekend. That's a huge step in the right direction, and Congress is coming back from a recess early to make those the, that testimony happen. And the Postmaster now has said, you know what, I'm going to halt all of these uh, efforts that have been happening, removing mailboxes, removing mail sorting machinery. I'm going to stop that until after the election. So at least there's some progress there. There's some acknowledgement that stuff's happening and he's going to stop. But at the same time, he has just been so blatant in all these acts up to this point that I just don't understand what else could happen. He says, well, I'm not going to remove mailboxes anymore, but I never said I was going to not do this. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know what else is coming. And I just I want us all to keep our eyes focused on the USPS, because it is such a vital institution for all of us as Americans. It's our right. It's in the Constitution. We all have the right to get mail and to be able to communicate with each other. That is so important. And that's one of the themes you're going to hear today from Allison is the importance of communication. So I just hope we're all paying attention to this. I hope we keep our eyes on the ball and uh, can figure out how to keep this post office going, because it's important to all of us. So that's my, uh, my little rant today about where we are with the post office and everything else. All right, here it is, my interview with executive producer of Full Frontal, Allison Camillo. I just want to start by sort of asking you about how the last, I guess, five months, <laughs> this whole quarantine period, how, how has it been treating you? It's been very interesting. I think it's been, <laughs> been very interesting for everyone. I've been pretty good, though. I, I'm at home with my husband and my two kids, and we're hanging in there as best as we possibly can. Yeah. I've got two kids as well. And just the juggling act of all of it. Like I'm so happy it's summer right now, uh, just because school's not in session. Same. Totally. It's so funny because I've talked to so many parents and they, you know, you ask like, oh, how's remote learning? And they're like, oh, it's fine. You know, we're getting through. And I'm like, I'm not going to mince words here. It's a shit show. It is yeah. not fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, just because to try to do your whole job and then spend half of your day telling a seven-year-old to do their homework right. is very difficult. Yeah. I, I feel lucky. You know, we're, we live a little outside of Boston. We're about 45 minutes out and I've got a decent sized yard here and I've got, you know, different levels uh, to the house. Like I can go up in the attic and kind of escape everything and lock the door. You know, I feel, are you in the city? Like, is that, how has that been going? Yeah, it's terrible. So we were, we started off in our 
1100 square foot apartment, which is big for yeah. New York. Like it's a fine sized apartment. But when you have four people in it and you have to be in there 24 hours a day, the walls start closing in very right. quickly. Right. So we actually moved during the quarantine because I was like, we got to get more space. We need to have some sort of like outside area. So we moved into a bigger apartment that now has a balcony just so at least we can get out on the balcony and get a breath of fresh air every day, which is great. Because I mean, you know, it was so scary in New York for the whole month of April and part of May, my children never left the apartment. So they were in the apartment for like 50 days without having left. Just because it was too scary to take little kids out, you yeah, know? That That's so crazy. I can't imagine the thought of moving during this time, too, just feels really daunting. Like, how, how did that all go? Looking back on it, I'm like, I can't believe that we did that. But I'm very glad that we did. We just were super careful about it. We, you know, I interviewed a bunch of moving companies, and we picked the one that had the absolute best safety protocols. And even when he showed up, I could tell that he did, like when he showed up to come take a look at all of our stuff or whatever. Yeah. And so we kept the kids out the whole time. We ran them around the neighborhood while everything was getting loaded up. I brought them to the new apartment. And then as soon as they got to the new apartment, I brought them back to the old apartment. So yeah. there was no crossover with children, but we were just, you know, everybody was like masked and gloved the whole time. I had, you know, a precious box of Clorox wipes that I was wiping down every like doorknob <laughs> and handrail and everything else that anybody possibly could have touched. Right. And then now, you know, and even moving in, there's always like little tiny things and maintenance has to come. So I send my kids back to the room and then we shut their doors and we put masks on and then I wait like 30 minutes and spray Lysol in the air before they come back out. You know, it's definitely been a thing, but I'm I'm actually like very, very glad we did it because we're, we're much more comfortable and we actually have some some breathing room and some elbow room, which is was definitely needed. Yeah. That, that is so critical at this time. Like, I just, I feel so fortunate having the yard and just that they can kind of go out there and play uh, and not have to have masks. I mean, that, you know, thinking about living in the city at this time of like, you know, even to go to the park or something like the kids have to wear masks to get out of the building in the park, the whole thing. Like, totally. That was our whole thing, too. I just didn't want to take them in the elevator, you know, and then the right. streets are really crowded. So it just seems safer to keep everybody at home. Like every single point that I felt sorry for myself, all I could think of is like, can you even imagine like, if you're a single mom, an essential worker right. who has kids at home, like, I, I don't even understand how you do it. And then it's just immediately, like, you know what I mean? It's just, you just feel lucky to even have what you have because yeah. it's just so, it's so bad for so many people. It's just really, really tough to negotiate. Yeah. I can't imagine just, you know, childcare during this time, you know, as you say, if you have to go to oh. work and, and you're the, you're the single parent, like, yeah, figuring out childcare once school starts, figuring that all out and just the logistics of all of it. Yeah, no, I, and my kids are older too. I don't know how old they are. Mine are seven and four. And so they're not like infants at this point, at least, you know, they're, they're old enough that they can kind of yeah. do their own thing. So that's, that's a blessing too, I think in this time. Yeah. I don't know how people do it. Me neither. Mine are seven and 11. And I felt very lucky about that because especially my 11 year old is like a mini adult. So yep. he was generally fine the whole time. But, you know, even when I've been out on the streets and I see moms who have like a two-year-old toddler, like, how are you going to get the mask on a two-year-old? Right. There's no way. And they just touch everything and they spend their whole lives with their hands in their mouth. So <laughs> it's been very tough. Yeah, no, totally. Well, I, I want to talk about Full Frontal some because you guys have just been been crushing it during this Great. whole time. It's It's been awesome. And by the way, congratulations. I know you guys Thank have you. two Emmy nominations uh, that got announced during this time as well. So that's uh, that's very exciting news. We were absolutely thrilled. It's it's always like, you know, people are always like, oh, it's a pleasure to be nominated. But let me tell you, like, that's the win for us is to get nominated, to right. know that, like, we're making a mark and that people are seeing the show and that they're enjoying what they're watching. Like, to me, it's just heavenly. It's the best feeling in the entire world to work so hard on something and then to get recognized for it. It's just like a, a wonderful, wonderful feeling. We're yeah. thrilled. No, totally. It's it's so exciting. I want to ask you sort of before everything moved to at-home production, like the last show that you guys did in the studio was was kind of on the edge, right? Like th there were some coronavirus cases that yeah. got confirmed like in the building that day, right? As, as you guys were shooting, essentially. Yes. yes, it was that was it was March 11. It was a wild day. Let yeah. me tell you. So basically, you know, even on March 10th, everything kind of like unfurled so quickly. It's amazing to think that how how much happened even in 24 hours. Right. So, you know, when I went in, Sam and I and all the other executive producers and everybody else gets in super early on Wednesday because it's our shooting day. And so we had been talking, we kind of been batting back and forth the idea of like, is it safe to have an audience? Is it not safe to have an audience? And we were sort of on the fence about it. And then it was just like, I woke up on that Wednesday morning and I was like, this is, it just doesn't feel safe. Yeah. And so I went into Sam's office first thing and I was like, I think we shouldn't have an audience today. And she was like, I was thinking exactly the same thing. It just right. doesn't feel safe. And so we canceled the audience for the day and we were the first 
late night show to cancel their audience. We felt like you just don't know if you're doing the right thing. Like you're doing sort of like what you think is best, but you don't know if that's the right thing. And then as the day progressed, we found out very late in the day, like I think it was like right at the end of our rewrite, that there was one confirmed coronavirus case in our office and then also a confirmed coronavirus case in the studio side where we were then. When you're in rewrite, you have to keep everything light and everybody's making jokes or whatever. So it's literally like that's the moment the shit hit the fan. And there were, you know, four of us in that room who knew what was going on and everybody else (laughs) didn't know because we needed them to kind of like focus and get the script done. Right. And so even like behind the scenes at that point, we're like madly slacking with other people and other department heads saying, hey, like anybody who's not essential to this show tonight, send them home. Like right now, get them out of the building. And then the minute rewrite was over, we told everybody what was going on and sent as many of those people home as possible. So we just kept this very small skeleton crew just to get the show done and went in the studio and taped it as quickly as possible, edited the show and then like got it out. It was just, it was so funny because it felt like a moment, like you could, you know what I mean? You know, when you can start to feel things like unfurl, like we could definitely feel that pressure was happening. But I, I I actually like even going back and watching that show. I love that show. It was so, I thought it was so smart because uh, our head writers, Kristen Bartlett and Mike Drucker had an idea to put parts of the script into the prompter that Sam had never seen. So she was reading jokes for the first time just to kind of give it like a little extra punch since we didn't have an audience. And, you know, Sam's incredible. She's an incredible performer and she was game for it. She was up for it, which I think is just like an amazing quality of a person. And so there are a lot of, a lot of the jokes in there she was reading for the first time and reacting to them for the first time. And I thought it, it made the show feel really special, you know, which is great. And then after the show was over, because we knew, we at least knew we were off for that Thursday and Friday. So we basically kind of like put the word out to everybody, like, take home whatever you can, take home added laptops, take take home like, you know, graphics equipment or lights or whatever you can grab just because we're not 100% sure how long we're going to be out of the studio. And that actually ended up really saving us later on to be able to do the show remotely. Yeah. So I want to talk about sort of that shift to remote production. Like, First of all, just the aesthetic of it, of like Sam in the Woods and like those first yeah. couple of shows, like in March and April, where it was still that like late yeah. winter time. And so like all the trees are bare and, yeah. you know, sometimes there's snow on the ground. Yeah. Like it just felt so apocalyptic, <laughs> like just the visual of those shows. Like, I guess, yeah. talk to me about sort of the process of like, how did you guys, how were you able to continue on and, and get a show out every week, despite the circumstances that were happening? I think because this is such a labor of love for all of us, the idea that we would be off the air was not an option. Yeah. Like we just, we felt like it was very necessary to be on the air, especially when, you know, an apocalypse is happening. We had a lot to say, we had a lot to, you know, to do. And this is the thing that we love doing. It's the thing we love focusing on. And so to not air was just not even an option. So how do we get the show on the air and what does the show look like and how are we going to make it happen? Technically, you know, it was Sam's decision to shoot outside But I I felt like, you know, that barren forest was really a metaphor for what was going on. Like, it was it was crazy. It was like at that point in the spring, at one second, it's 70 degrees. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, it's 30 and snowing. Right. And it just really felt like this is kind of like the world collapsing around us. And so, you know, it felt like a beautiful metaphor for what was going on. And then as the spring started to come up and the trees started to bloom and stuff like that, I think it actually is just like a beautiful green backdrop to have Sam in front of, which feels really nice. Yeah. It's funny, too, because I think of like Colbert did a couple of shows like kind of that first week. I don't know if you saw him, but like kind of by a fire pit and like on his back deck and stuff. And like the audio is bad yeah. and just like none of it worked. <laughs> and, and I'm kind of surprised that you guys are still yeah. doing it just because it does work so beautifully. Like, the, you know, she looks good and it, it almost looks like the background is keyed at yeah. certain points. Like it doesn't look real. But then like I've it seen the behind the scenes and stuff. Yep. And you're like, oh, no, like she's really shooting out there. She's really out there for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was it was really important to us too to make sure that I, like I think that was kind of the bar that we set for ourselves early on is that we want to get the show back on the air. But we want to get the show back on the air as an A plus and not an A minus. And it was super important to us. And we've got, you know, a bunch of technical people behind the scenes who like their sole focus is how can we make something with an iPhone look and sound good. And so they're on it immediately trying to figure out like, how do we color correct? How do we correct the audio to make it sound as good as possible? And then the other thing that was just a huge asset is the fact that Sam's married to Jason Jones, who's, you know, a director, a producer, a writer, an EP on the show. And so between Sam and Jason, you know, Sam is also like a fantastic director and a fantastic producer. And with the two of them 
they were able to figure out how to light it. And then we could sort of like talk them through, this is how the teleprompter program works on the iPad. And this is how, you know, this is the program that you need to shoot all the stuff on the iPhones. And this is how we upload it and kind of like walked through through all of those steps and then made it work. Yeah. Even like the prompter piece of it, just, I know, you know, I've used like prompter apps before on like an iPad and like the auto scroll function, just getting the timing of that right is is so difficult. Like, and, and the sizing and all that, like, it just, yeah, hats off to those guys. Yeah. And, you know, as as you're talking about it, too, it makes me realize they both came from the Daily Show field department. And that experience, I'm sure, yeah. just sort of being out in the field with a single, can- you know, it, it's part of her DNA, yeah. I guess. Like, she didn't come up through a studio show, necessarily. Yeah. A lot of her background is in is in field production anyway. So I'm sure that was, was a huge asset in all this. Absolutely. It definitely was. And, she, you know, I think all of it just kind of speaks to what a pro fan is as far as just being able to like think on our feet and get it back together. And you know, they have to reshoot things, obviously. And especially like the teleprompter is a real pain in the butt because that auto scroll sometimes just really doesn't keep up with where you're going. Right. But I think that she's such a professional that it's like, it comes together, you know, they tape it in an hour or two where if it were somebody like me, who's not good at that stuff, it would take me three days to right. get it. Work, you know, <laughs> I, I think they're doing a really great job. And I also, I think the thing that's really interesting to me to see how the show comes together with no audience is that Sam kind of figured out that timing yep. very early on, like how, how, kind of how to read the script without an audience. And I think she's really nailed that timing, which has also been like essential to making sure that that, the show is rising to kind of that A, A plus level. Yeah, totally. There's never those sort of dead moments that, you know, like where they're kind of holding for a laugh or there's, you know, you hear an off camera chuckle or something. It's like, it feels natural (laughs) as you're watching it. You don't notice the lack of an audience, which is, which is a really good thing. I want to ask about your job and all this and sort of just coordinating all the different departments. And as we're talking about at the beginning, like everybody Mm -hmm. being home with spouses and kids and, you know, just all these crazy requirements. Like how, how do you pull all the disparate parts together (laughs) to make the show each week? It's, I mean, honestly, I think that like the cornerstone of it all is communication and over communication because it's sort of like, you know, everybody's got their own lives going on. And then now their work is also in their home lives, which is very, very difficult. Right. And so we're in constant contact with each other. I'm texting Sam a hundred times a day. I'm texting the other producers. We're on Slack all the time. The writer's on Slack. The field department's on Slack. Post is on Slack. We're all kind of like together, just trying to constantly communicate. And honestly, like sometimes we do a really good job at it. Sometimes we don't do a really good job at it. And then we realize that we messed up and then we have to fix it and move on. But I think that's basically been the most essential thing is trying to figure out how to stay in constant contact with people just because since we're not physically together, we have to be virtually together. Right. And has it been primarily text-based things like text messaging or, uh, or Slack or has zoom and stuff played into it? Like, I'm just, I'm thinking the schedule, I guess, of like, everybody's on a different pace at at home. And like, if you can, you know, if I can bang off an email at nine o'clock at night, but someone else is waking up at 6am to work or, you know, like just, I I feel like face to face is probably a lot harder in this time. Have you found that? Yeah, it definitely is harder, but I would say like literally there's no technical thing that we haven't done. So it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, literally it's like Google Hangouts and Zoom and WebEx and Slack and text and phone calls and Slack calls and anything that you can possibly think of, of, ways that people can communicate virtually, we've definitely done it. I would say like primarily we're kind of text and slack, but because of exactly what you're saying, people have different schedules and, you know, you can't predict if your four-year-old's going to come in and all of a sudden need your attention for 30 minutes, you know? Yeah. I just wonder too, even like during the writing process and all, like just, I feel like there's, there's so much good that can come together from, you know, everybody sitting around a table in a writer's room and just, you know, pitching jokes and and kind of one-upping each other. Like, how ha- how have you been yeah. able to replace that sort of writer's room vibe virtually? It's definitely hard. I think that that's the thing that you realize is that part of communication is nonverbal communication. And when you're in a room with each other and you can see each other, like you have that and you never realize that it's there until someone has taken it away, which essentially they have right now. Yeah. I think the writers have done an amazing job. Our head writers in particular kind of like keeping their group together. They've sort of uh, structured out different periods where they have these big group calls. Like one, you know, they write all the scripts for the show, like write all the preliminary scripts for the show. And then Saturday night, you know, they have a six to eight hour call with a bunch of them on there, just kind of going through and with our studio department too, going through, you know, line by line and sort of figuring it out um, and making sure that everything's the way that they want. And then on Monday morning, we have a Zoom 
read through with Sam and all the writers and all of the EPs. And Sam reads through the whole script. And then we go back through line by line and sort of do a similar like mini rewrite at that point to make sure that everything's the way that we want it. Yeah. I, I feel like, in, and, and then are you taping like Monday afternoon, Tuesday at that point or? Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon. And we tape Tuesday afternoon because the light starts getting really good at around four o'clock. So gotcha. normally Sam tapes around Tuesday at four. Okay, because I was just thinking of like sort of the the uh, the avalanche of news that's been happening during this time as well, and just sort of yeah. trying to stay on top of that. And you know, like you guys need mm-hmm. additional post time that you're not you you, you know you're talking about taping in the old days on Wednesdays yeah. and airing Wednesday night. So you know mm-hmm. you had a chance to be a lot more yep. reactive. Like how how have how has that factored in? I guess just the pace of breaking news in this time. I, I think that it, it's one of those things where you have to. Ch- shift your focus and dig a little bit deeper so that your headlines are not necessarily based on breaking news, but you're basing them on a specific take that you have on news that is happening right now. So it's like, instead of, you know, that kind of line by line reaction, you're reacting to the whole thing because you definitely do miss that sort of like Tuesday to Wednesday, last minute change and something that's happened. Right. Um, I want to ask to one of the big campaigns that you guys have done during this time is, is around saving the postal service. And, you know, there's a segment about it back in April and then there was this campaign in July, mm-hmm. this hashtag mailed it that you guys did, uh, essentially tweeting at, at Donald yeah. Trump and Steve Mnuchin uh, and, and buying 100,000 yeah. <laughs> stamps for, for people tweeting that way. We did. Like, that was so yeah. awesome. And just, I don't know, like, just what, what's your take on kind of what's going on with the post office? Like, 91% of Americans approve of it. Like, everybody accesses yeah. it. You know, you, we go out to our mailbox every day and check yeah. it. Like, how is this happening? I, I mean, I, I'm asking the exact same questions yeah, <laughs> that right? you are. To me, it's it's such a it's such a vital portion of our country. And I mean, it's even you know what we were just talking about communication. That's what the post office is. That's communication. Right. That's for people who live on rural routes who have like no other contact with anybody else. Like that's how they get their communication with the world. And it, to me, to take that away is just appalling. The fact that you wouldn't see the value of the post office is incredible. And to me in particular, you know, for this election coming up, like mail-in voting is going to be the way to go. That's the way to keep Americans safe and to keep the the election exactly the way that it needs to be. So the thought of like taking it away is just like, it's unbelievable. It's yeah. shocking to me. Yeah. If I had like thought of this as something, somebody was like, oh, this is what's going to happen in 2020. And they told me in 2000, I would have been like, no, there's no way you're lying. Right. <laughs> you can't do that. You yeah. know? Uh, it's it's amazing too. You talk about two thousand. Just like I I feel like I almost could have believed it mm-hmm. at that time. Just thinking of like oh well maybe email and online billing and stuff will replace it. But like it's still so yeah. bad. Like I have a post office down the street from my house, and it's been you know we've been getting grocery deliveries and like I haven't gone a lot of places in the last five months. But the post office is still you know I don't know once a week or so I have a package to mail to family or a friend or you know like yeah. I, that's the one place yeah. that I'm kind of still going. <laughs> pretty regularly during this time. Yeah. I think that's the whole thing too. It's like, especially in a time like this, when you strip down to those basic necessities, you see the ones that you actually really do use. And the post office is always in those for everyone. You know, that's how you get things to other people. That's now that's your contact with other people. I can send, you know, my mom a care package or something to my nephew. And like that, that's where it goes. Yeah, no, totally. I want to ask too, just sort of, you know, bigger picture, thinking about the Trump administration and all this, like, they're just so needy in terms of attention, <laughs> just sort of driving headlines. Yeah. And like, yeah. I wonder for you guys, like figuring out that balancing act, I guess, of just like dealing with kind of the fatigue of like, oh, we're talking about this guy again. Like, really, we did this joke last week yeah. or, you know, a version of this joke. Like, how is the how is there nothing yeah. else that we can talk about in this? Like, how do you how do you balance that? I mean, I think that obviously like there is Trump fatigue and we do, you know, we shift away from them occasionally just because it's like there's so much else to talk about. But to me, there's always a flip side of the coin. So it's like, you know, we're sick of talking about Trump, but right now, you know who I want to talk about? Kamala Harris. Right. And that's amazing. And that's like energizing to talk about that. So to me, it's like you have to take what's going on and shift it to something that you're, that you feel super passionate about and that you're really excited about. And then that's how it comes through on the show as exciting, you know. And something that people want to watch. Yeah, no, totally. And, you know, I saw you guys interviewed her during this time and Elizabeth Warren and Stacey Abrams. You got, yes. You've had an amazing yes. sort of slate yes. of interviews during this time as well of, you know, progressive uh, politicians, which is really awesome. It's been fantastic. And the thing that's, that's really funny, too, about quarantine is that, you know, there are people 
that you you never know. Like we're always surprised when anyone says yes. I think right. we still feel of, uh, think of ourselves as like a little tiny show that just started. And so it's like when like an Elizabeth Warren or Stacey Abrams says yes, we're like, oh my gosh. But even in this quarantine period, the fact that you can get people on a Zoom call, those bookings are a little bit easier because people are home and they have extra time to do things, which yeah. has been fantastic for our show. I want to ask you too, you guys have done a lot of music numbers during this time. And like, I know mm-hmm. like we've done like, yeah. you know, family Zoom calls where we'll sing happy birthday to somebody or something. And like just getting the timing of yeah. that to work is near impossible. Like it just sounds yeah. like garbage. Like how do you work, you know, when you have yeah. a band where there's musicians in five different houses, have you, do you have a sense of sort of how yeah. you figured out the technical piece of getting the timing right and making it sound good? It, it takes a lot of work, honestly. So we have a fantastic producer named Kim Burgess, who's in charge of those. And then we have a whole editing team. Our editors are magicians, let me tell you. They can make anything look good. They're all so incredibly talented. And so they basically take all of it, take all of that, those kind of like individual Zoom videos and string them together and add graphics and effects and just make them into this like smooth, really refined kind of music video, uh, but it's a hundred percent, you know, a result of like their skill level, which is just off the chart. Yeah, no, totally. It's, it's really impressive. Uh, I want to ask you too, just sort of broadly about full frontal, um, you know, it's, it, you guys do 30 minutes once a week and, you know, there are other late night mm-hmm. shows that are sort of in that ballpark, but, you know, going all the way up to there are some that are doing, you know, five hours a week, <laughs> like, I guess looking at yeah. that sort of time slot of, of having a half hour a week to talk to your audience, what are some of the challenges in that? And are there opportunities that come from, from having that, uh, that time? Absolutely. Definitely. Sam and me and a couple of the other EPs came from The Daily Show. I was yep. at The Daily Show for 18 and a half years. Wow. And let me tell you, doing 30 minutes, four nights a week for 18 and a half years is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's fantastic, <laughs> but it is exhausting. Yep. And so to do 30 minutes, it's really a gift. And I think the thing that it gives you is that it allows you to take all the material and really curate it. Like you have an extra, you have an extra beat to sort of really polish things up and make them look exactly the way that you want. And I honestly feel like, like that's a real gift. I I love 30 minutes once a week. I think it's great. And it also makes the the real estate on the show really valuable. Every single minute on that show is incredibly valuable because we only have 30 minutes a week to talk to people. And so it helps you make sure that every single thing is exactly the way you want. And it's rising to, you know, your quality control, which is great. It's interesting too, just sort of thinking about your peers that are in that, that area of, you know, 30 minutes once a week, you know, Hassan Minaj Mm -hmm. or or John Oliver, like those guys tend to dive into sort of one issue long form and they don't have commercial breaks to contend with, I guess, you know, you guys have, have act breaks written in, but like you guys, I feel like veer more into sort of the immediate topical, like your first act is sort of always very headline driven Mm -hmm. And it's it's just yes. it's interesting to me just sort of thinking about that difference that like I feel like I can tune into Full Frontal if I haven't read you know the newspaper or Twitter or something for two or three days and feel caught up on the news mm-hmm. in that first act. I just wonder sort right. of th- that yeah like how how deliberate it was when you were setting the format of the show that like it's going to be very news heavy up front and then as you say there's going to be different features you know in the other acts of the show. Totally. First of all, thank you. That's really a nice compliment. <laughs> It, it, it was really deliberate, honestly. And I think that it's sort of like, you know, everybody who was involved with it really was interested in having a show that just touched on a bunch of things. It's, you know, we all we all have like relatively short attention spans. And so we just wanted it to have that like nice dynamic variance as the show goes on. So it's sort of like a bunch of different things. And I love the fact that we get to tackle, you know, the current events in the first act head on. And then I also love our actors and the fact that it's, you know, they're generally a story that deserves to have a light shined on it, that nobody else is shining on it. And that feels really good. And then I love going out in the field. So to me, it's like, I just love seeing different things. I'm one of those people who like, that's the show I want to watch. And so I think that that's how everybody felt, you know? Yeah. Not having field pieces during this time. How have you guys been able to sort of work around having, you know, missing that dynamic in the show? We have a really great field department and they have got, they were sort of thinking even from the very beginning like how can we do something that works like a field piece but is not actually out in the field yep. so they've come up with some really good options i think sam is a fantastic interviewer so that's really helped us out yep. i think also like i love 
to see kind of like where we're going with this to watch these field pieces evolve. Like there's one piece that one of our producers, Roseanne, did where Sam was on an iPad that was attached to a robot. And oh, yeah. And the robot that. That out awesome. into the park with Roseanne. <laughs> so she could like talk to people in real time. Yep. And to me, it's like that is, I thought that was the funniest thing in the entire world. And I thought it was so smart to try to figure out a way to have that interaction because like I love, there's nothing funnier than like actual human interaction that's like non-scripted. Right. And so I just, I love that. And I think they've, you know, they've got a bunch of ideas for things that are sort of like in that vein, kind of like how to shake up those field pieces that I think it's really exciting. Yeah. I also really like there was that moment in that piece where she was interviewing the the doctor that does like the telemedicine and just seeing that wide shot yeah. of the two robots kind of talking to each other on the street. I thought was brilliant. That was so funny. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Roseanne, that producer, she's fantastic. She's super smart. She came from the documentary world. And so a lot of her pieces, you can tell, are just like visually stunning and, and funny. Like she translates like that joke into a visual, what they think is amazing. She's yeah. great. Yeah, that was really good. I want to ask, too, just sort of, you know, there there was about five years ago, this sort of famous picture that Vanity Fair took of, you know, all the male late night hosts. And at the time, Sam wasn't in it. And she had uh, kind of photoshopped herself as, you know, this this centaur with laser laser eyes and all this into that photo. Yeah. And, you know, just thinking about sort of where we are in late night, like, you know, uh, Lily Singh has a show now. They just announced Amber Ruffin is going to have a show on Peacock. But it still feels yeah. very male dominated. Right. Like, you know, how I guess it does. Yeah. Like, wh- how do you guys find your voice in that? And, and how do you how do we how do we grow women's presence in the late night television space? You know, it's I think the thing that's been really frustrating to me is that because it's not like other places haven't tried. Like they they give women shows, but they give them these teeny tiny little, you know, like it's like an eight show run where that's yeah. no that's not enough for anybody to get legs on a show. So right. it's like I feel like we really need to sort of like look to networks and look to streaming platforms to give women like an equivalent opportunity. So it's like, you know, if you're going to give a man like, you know, a six month run on Netflix or Amazon or whatever, like, you know, give the funny woman the six month try too, as opposed to just these shorter runs. And I think that's really what it comes down to. But I think I wish I knew the answer to that one. It's, it's incredibly frustrating. And it's like, you know, every woman i was so excited for amber every woman who like kind of gets that opportunity to give it a go it yeah. makes me thrilled we're behind them 100 percent. yeah no totally and you know i just i i don't know like i feel like it's such a your show is so valuable for me as a man just to tune into because it's not it's not feminist in a way that it's like you know pushing something on me but it's clearly told from a from mm-hmm. a woman's point of view and it's just helpful for me to to consider yeah. that and sort of see the world through those eyes because it's not how yeah. I naturally look at things. And, you know, it's 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 a it's a built in bias that I'm not even aware of that. Then, you know, when I see Sam make a joke about something, I go, oh, yeah, no, I guess that is that is how women see the world. And I hadn't even considered that. Like, it's, it's such an important voice, I guess, to have in there that, you know, like for me as a man is, is beneficial, too, you know? Yeah, that's I think that's wonderful. Thank you so much for saying that. And it's it's true. It's like, I've been so glad that we've been on the air when we've been on the air because there's so many topics that I do feel like we have a different perspective because we're coming at it, you know, as women, obviously with men on staff too, but like there's a a very strong female voice on our show. But so even to go through, you know, like the Epstein's and the Weinstein's and Me Too and things like that, we obviously have a lot to say about it and we have a very different perspective than a male host would have. And so that's really been a gift to be able to be on TV during a time when we could have that unique perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to talk about your time at The Daily Show some, but sort of broadly, something that kind of sure. bridges both worlds, I guess, is, you know, there was that that article, I don't even remember, it feels like it was probably 15 years ago or something, but that, like, you know, most young people were getting their news from The Daily Show. And I just, I think about yes. sort of the diversity of, of late night TV, you know, with, with all the different shows that are on now. And to me, I, I almost feel like it's not a bad thing <laughs> to get your news from all these different sources. Now, you know what I mean? Oh, like, totally. yeah, like yeah. if you can infuse comedy yeah. into the headline, you, you're still getting informed. Yeah. And, and as we were talking about, so you get you get the different yeah. hosts point of view, you know, whether it's it's Sam or Trevor or, you know, whoever, they all have very different perspectives on things. And to hear those different points of view, you're like, OK, yeah, that that helps me understand the issue in a bigger way, I think. Exactly. I've always thought of it as vegetables with cheese sauce. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like you're putting like the comedy cheese sauce on it, so it goes down a little yeah. bit easier. <laughs> I mean, and to analogy. me, I, I've I've always been <laughs> thank you. I've always been so like into politics 
and into comedy. But to me, it's like anything that helps anybody get engaged because it's so important to be involved in politics. Just as a, as a American citizen, it yep. is so important to be engaged in politics. And so to me, anything that gets people excited about it and engaged and explains different ideas to them, I think it's fantastic. And I love it. Yeah, no, totally. And and I feel like we're at this moment now, too, where we're all starting to realize just sort of how important it is, you know, like, I just I feel like a lot of things were happening in the dark because people felt like, well, you know, it's politics. No one gets along or I don't need to be involved in that conversation. You know, someone else is going to take care of it. And just through, you know, the, these voting ID laws and things, you know, disenfranchising people and, mm-hmm. you know, d- d- gerrymandering yeah. and just there's so much that sort of happened very maliciously over the last, you know, 20 years in the immediate sense. But I guess, you know, yeah. 30 or 40, really, that just I hope we're all paying mm-hmm. attention. And, it, it, you know, it feels like with Black Lives Matter and Me Too. And there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot more focus on this. And I feel like a lot more young people getting engaged in a way that, you know maybe people hadn't been 15 or 20 years ago. I totally agree. And I think that it's actually changed the way that late night works too. Mm. Like I know, you know, when I was at the daily show, it was so funny because it like, just to kind of watch it evolve, it was like fantastic and great and great comedy. And then it stopped. And I feel like that's the thing that we've been able to like elevate with our show is that we take it a step further where it's like now it's gone from passive to active. Right. It's like, not only like this is what's going on and here's the joke, but this is what you can do about it. Right. This is who you should call. This is what, you know what I mean? And to me to take it that extra step. And obviously like other shows are doing that too. John Oliver is fantastic about that, but to take it that extra step from passive to active right. feels really like the right thing to do. Yeah, no, it's, it's super important. Uh, so let's talk about sort of your history with the daily show. Like what, what was it that mm-hmm. first led you there? <laughs> like how did you get that job and, and what made you want to work yeah. in, in late night comedy? You know, I, I have wanted to work in TV since I was probably five years old and uh-huh. realized that there are people who are actually making TV shows. But I grew up in a teeny tiny town in Virginia and people were like, oh, that's adorable. What do you really want to do? Right. So I sort of like had this in the back of my mind forever. I went to college. I was an English major and I took a lot of film classes, loved being in Virginia. But at the same time, that little voice in the back of my head was like, you have to try to work in TV. Just like give it one shot and see if you can do it. I was a literary editor for a news magazine at my college, you know, did a lot of stuff there, was super into politics, have always been really into comedy. Like, you know, Steve Martin is like a legend to me and I feel like I grew up with them. So when The Daily Show came out in 1996, I was like, I mean, I was immediately hooked. I felt like, what a great idea because I always, you know, would watch Saturday Night Live specifically for weekend update. And then when I could have 30 minutes of it four nights a week, I was like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. It's like my two favorite things all put together. And my friend Sam and I came to New York in 1997 and went to the daily show. And when I was sitting there, I was like, this is the place I want to work. I need to figure out how to make it happen. Yeah. You just went and sat in the audience for a taping. I did. (laughs) I did. Yeah. And so I pulled the PA aside after the taping and I was like, Hey, do you guys have interns? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, can I have your fax number? And they said, sure. So I went to Columbia University computer lab and typed out my resume that night and sent it in. They called me the next day and I came back for an interview. And then I got an internship that started there in January of 1998. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And so I like, you know, my friend Sam and I both packed up. We moved to New York City and just took it from there. And they eventually hired me as the production secretary right when my internship was over. And then I just kind of, you know, kept moving up along the ranks. And then, you know, been 18 and a half of my life there years of my life there and it was absolutely fantastic it's a, the greatest place in the whole world i love the daily show yeah that's awesome so you were there this was the craig kilborn era mm-hmm. when you started right that's correct yeah i was there before john wow. and it was it was amazing to see like i just remember you know the, there were a lot of people who were there who knew him from the old john stewart show yeah. on mtv madeline smithberg who was one of the co-creators of the daily show worked with him then and I think, honestly, they had had their eyes on John to be the host for a long time, but John was kind of trying to make a run as a movie career at that yeah. point. But then when Craig left to do his own late night show in L.A., it was like, you know, they, we auditioned a bunch of people, but I know in their mind they really wanted John. And it was just like the right point in time. He wanted to do it. They wanted him. And he came on. And we were just like so thrilled to have him. He's so, I mean, he's just an incredible person. He's the smartest person I've ever met in my whole life. And he was just like, you know, the captain of our ship for 
however, like 16 and a half years. Yeah. Well, and I'm really curious too. Like, I feel like the show really found focus and maybe it was closer to like the 2000 election. I felt like, you know, at that point, the politics mm-hmm. piece really yeah. became kind of focused. You know, I feel like Craig Kilborn, there were, it, there were politics were a piece of it, but it wasn't, it wasn't the full humor and just sort of, I yeah. feel like John really sort of leaned into that. And then that sort of became the show's calling card, yeah. right? Was, was the politics piece of it. Absolutely. And that's the thing too, is that, you know, that Craig was like, it just wasn't his passion. Like yep. politics are John's passion. Right. This is, he's in it a hundred percent, you know? And we, at that point, even before John, we already had Stephen Colbert there as a correspondent yep. and Stephen's passion is politics. He loves everything about it. So, you know, then you get, John and you get Steven and then you add on Steve Carell, you know, you get Ed Helms in there, you get Rob Cordry in there and everybody's kind of like in that same, like, what can we do? I just remember, I think this was 2000 when we did an interview on a bus with John McCain Okay. and uh, Nick McKinney was the producer and Steve Carell was on there and they somehow had talked their way onto this bus with John McCain. I don't even know (laughs) if he knew exactly who we were. Right. And he, Steve, Steve asked him a bunch of like really softball questions that were just like kind of puff questions. And then the last question he asked him was like this uh, really intense question about pork barrel politics. <laughs> and John McCain's face just kind of like dropped. And then there was like a solid 15 second silence where they just sort of stared at each other. And then Steve went, I'm just joking. And it was like the funniest <laughs> thing ever. And I really feel like that moment kind of like ignited that like, okay, this is this is it. This is how we've got it, you yeah. know? No, totally. And, and I, I remember, too, just sort of really loving The Daily Show and then sort of, you know, Full Frontal and Hassan's show and sort of all these things that have branched out from John's Daily Show of, like, there are a lot of the mm-hmm. times the first place that I've learned about sort of these regional politicians that, you know, like a, like a Julian Castro or a Stacey Abrams or, you know, these people yeah. that are sort yeah. of working at the local level and then all of a sudden, you know, hit it really big on the national stage. And it's always like, oh, I remember, you know, John Stewart interviewing that guy like a year ago and having no idea who it was. And like now they're everywhere. Just yeah. that was always sort of how I found out about who was up and coming, which I really appreciated. Totally. I mean, you have to understand, too, it's like at The Daily Show, it it was like this giant group of really smart, wonky nerds who love politics and love comedy. It was a huge staff. I think that we had like 80 people on staff. So it's like they're constantly researching different local races and researching national races. And then they just sort of, you know, we kind of pull together these pitch packets where you can read these really incredible stories of smaller politicians that you can see have a really bright future ahead of them. And that's how we would, we would always try to kind of get ahead of the curve on that as far as like who was going to be on the show. And I think we were really successful at doing it a lot of times too, you know, but it it really all came down to just like, that was the love of the people on the staff there. And and so I want to ask sort of the transition from the daily show to full frontal, like sort of how, how did you and Sam become friends and what led you to, to make that leap after 18 and a half years at, at the daily show? So Sam came to the daily show, I think in 2003, and um, I loved her immediately. She's so funny and she's really smart. And she's no joke. She's like the kindest and most generous person I've ever met in my entire life. She reminds me a lot of my sister. And so I just immediately felt, you know, really close to her and loved talking to her. I would spend hours talking to her in her office. And we just had like a really nice friendship. And I also had a huge respect for her work. I think she is hilarious. And I thought like even from the moment she started at The Daily Show, she was just knocking it out of the park on every piece. Yep. And it's, it's no wonder that she was because she's also one of those people. She would never just like, she was not a correspondent who would show up and like read a script. She was a person who was like taking notes, doing her own research, figuring out exactly like the angle that she had. She was like, played such an active role in her pieces. And that's really what made them her own and made them really good. And I just thought she like, you know, just everyone she knocked out of the park. And so I just really loved working with her and I loved her work ethic and I thought it was great. You know, she and I, so I guess we met in 2003. So then 2015-ish is when she got full frontal and decided to leave The Daily Show. And it it took me a beat just because I have a husband and two kids to be like, okay, yeah, I'm definitely going. But she was like, you know, I, I really... I really feel like we need you. She was telling me too, and this is like my favorite analogy in the whole world. She was like, I just feel like I'm trying to make a casserole and I've got the meat and I've got the potatoes and I just need the cheese sauce to hold it all together. <laughs> so I want you to come over and be the cheese. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so now I'm the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> it's so wonderful. I've like loved my time at Full Funnel. This is my favorite job I've ever had in the entire world. I love the people that I work with. And so 
you know, even as much as I love the daily show, it was truly the right decision for me. And I'm, I'm really glad I did it. Yeah. I can imagine just the pace must be so much nicer, you know, especially now, like, oh, yeah, being totally. a mom, and just yeah. like, I would, yeah, I would take yeah. that schedule any day. It totally. Like. Exactly. Yeah. It was, I mean, when I, when I moved over, I had like, you know, a six-year-old and a two-year-old. So I had like teeny oh, tiny yeah. babies and the idea of doing one show a week was fabulous. Yeah, no, totally. That makes perfect sense. So looking ahead to sort of next year, like, what are what are you guys thinking at this point? Do you think will you be back in the studio without an audience? <laughs> will will it still be from Sam's yard? Like what's what's the thinking right now? Do you have a sense of of where you're headed? I think we're you know we're trying to just stay really nimble as far as like like we're keeping all of our options open because to me it's like everything is still so uncertain. Yeah, you know obviously like the our first concern is safety. So it's safety for Sam, safety for our staff, safety for our crew, and until we can really guarantee that safety like we just don't want to put anybody at risk and we we love the show that we're doing in the forest so for right now that still feels like the right thing to do but you know if you ask me in two months it may be a completely different story you know i feel like it's like everything right now you know schools reopening just like any of it it's like you know every day there's new data that you know one day it's it's a whole stack of pros and the next day it's a whole stack of cons and you're just like i I guess we just got to make the decision that's best for, you know, for this moment and then, you know, reassess it every week or so. That's exactly right. I mean, and that's the whole thing, too. It's like schools are reopening, but are they reopening? You know what right. I mean? I totally agree with you. It's like you just don't know. And I think that, like, that's really what you have to do is you just have to think safety first and then just make all your decisions from there. And especially, like, it would be a bigger motivation to go back into the studio if we felt like we weren't happy with the way the show was currently. Yep. But I think we all just, we just love it. I love seeing Sam in the forest. I think she her blonde hair looks so nice up against that green. It makes me really happy. <laughs> all right. Allison Camillo, like all of us, just taking it one day at a time. That's all we can do, right? Full Frontal with Samantha B airs Wednesdays at 1030 on TBS. Make sure you check that out. If you haven't seen it, I don't know why you listened this far <laughs> into the show, but it is a really, really good show, and it's funny, and it's smart, and please go check it out. All right, I have a new show coming on Monday, talking to Sarah Stiles, the Broadway star. She was in Tootsie. She was in Avenue Q. You can see her now on Billions on Showtime and on Get Shorty on Epics, and she has a new show for Netflix that she's going to talk about. So make sure you come back on Monday. Hit the subscribe button, and uh, you'll be one of the first to have it in your feed. And if you don't mind, too, Leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps with a new show like this. Just build an audience and get off the ground. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Shoot me a message. Give me a line. Let me know what you're thinking. I will be back on Monday, and uh, I'll talk to you then. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay safe. Stay safe.